Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to Rounding the Earth, the podcast. Rounding the Earth is a popular newsletter series published on Substack, written by applied statistician and educator Matthew Crawford. Topics of discussion range from critical analysis of conventional wisdom to Bitcoin and everything in between. And of course, more recently, the COVID-19 pandemic, which once again will be our subject for today. Our goal is a careful examination of important topics and perspectives shaping the world that too few people talk about, though more are talking about them every single day. Subscribe to Rounding the Earth on Substack, Rumble, YouTube, and now Rockfin to join a burgeoning research community and to help us unflatten the earth. My name is Liam Sturgis. I am a musician, music producer, and writer slash editor coming at you live from Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. And I will be your host for today. And please allow me to introduce the author of Rounding the Earth and my co-host, Matthew Crawford. How are you, Matthew? Hey, Liam. I'm well. Excellent. I, How is I, I, you know, I, I love our intro. The, the, the double cello, that, that's good. I, I, I dig it. Rock on. I love it, too. We've gotten some good feedback on it. Um, and it shows you uh, how Fiverr can really be an excellent resource. <laughs> um, yeah. So today um, we've got uh, a, a personal friend of mine, someone who I've had the honor of uh, uh, sharing dinner with and uh, a local hero of mine, someone who's fighting the good fight for not just his profession, but really for people all around Canada and the world. Please welcome Dr. York Shang. How are you, York? Very well. Morning, Liam. Morning, Matthew. Morning. So do you want to briefly introduce yourself to the people who uh, may not know who you are? Of course, we will have some people coming in who have heard you speak before or met you. But for those who haven't, could you give us an introduction? Sure. Uh, so my name is York Shang. Um, I was a consultant vascular surgeon at the Vancouver General Hospital for 32 years. Um, and I was a professor of vascular surgery um, until uh, December of last year. And what happened December last year? Well, um, as some of you may recall, um, December of last year was when the mandates were imposed by the uh, provincial health officer, that's Dr. Bonnie Henry, her office, uh, insisting that all healthcare workers had to be vaccinated in order to work. Uh, and if you were not vaccinated, um, a number of healthcare workers who were probably quite senior at the time decided just to take early retirement. Um, those who were not that senior faced the dilemma of whether they should get vaccinated to work or um, for whatever reason, um, they did not feel comfortable to take the vaccine, they would then choose to become um, essentially terminated or put on leave without pay uh, for an indefinite period. So in my case, uh, when that choice was um, essentially placed before me, I chose early retirement in both situations. Mm. So they, now, they to were be going to sacrifice 32 years of experience, um, vascular surgeon, uh, during a year when we're seeing 
I, am I right in saying that we've never seen this many vascular issues? Uh, I would say that is correct. We've never seen so many vascular issues related to, let's say, a viral infection. That was quite novel. Is that what's happening? So before you, in your work, before you took your early retirement, did you see, was there an uptick in such cases uh, prior to the rollout of the COVID-19 vaccinations? No. Um, you know, we've always had a background of, um, well, let me, let me explain to you simply. Vascular surgery sounds very exotic, uh, but for your listeners, it is... Um, careful plumbing, shall we say. Uh, um, so we essentially, we deal with pipes. Um, these are arteries and veins uh, of all different sizes. And the pipes, instead of containing um, water, it contains a special fluid called blood. And now the interaction with the blood and the lining of the pipes. And so that lining is like a Teflon lining. If anything goes wrong with the Teflon lining, you will clot. And that's the basis of, of blood clots. Now, a, a number of our, well, many of our listeners will already have a lot of context and understand some of what's going on and some of what other doctors, for example, the work of Dr. Charles Hoff, Dr. Sukarit Bhakti, these are individuals who have documented in, uh, in, in good detail uh, and done a good job of explaining the mechanisms behind what's happening, you know, in the the uh, in, in the endothelial wall of the uh, of the blood vessels, if I'm using that uh, th those words properly. So why is it, first of all, that we're speaking specifically about the COVID-19 vaccines? We're not necessarily discussing vaccines in general that caused so many healthcare workers to take early retirement. Is that right? Um. There's a similarity here. The COVID infection in itself um, is uh, produced by this spike protein on the um, um, virus itself. The COVID-19 vaccines specifically replicates the spike protein and it, <clears throat> it does so in your body by having your body's tissues um, actually replicates more and more of the spike. This spike is the toxin. Whether it is from the actual viral infection or the vaccine, the consequence of it is the same. Yeah, and one, one of the things that I did not understand about SARS-CoV-2 in the beginning was um, that uh, a lot of the infection is, is happening in the gut. Is that right? Um, I don't think so. Um, um, so typically for a viral infection, this is um, an aerosolized virus. And so it, it gains entry to your body through the, what's known as the aerodigestive tract. And so it comes in through your nose, your mouth, uh, and then it seeds itself um, into the airway passages. And so the, the first portal of entry is there, and the first major organ to be affected would really naturally be your lungs. If it gains entry from there into your circulation, then it can really uh, uh, attack any part of your body. And, but uh, with an injection, it's much closer to your uh, circulatory system from the get-go. Well, I would say yes. And so uh, with the injection, this is a kind of a, it's different. This um, jab, 
um, some people call it a vaccine, is different from other types of vaccines, where vaccines are typically, after it's in injected into your um, tissues, it tends to stay there. With this COVID injection, there has been some, uh, in fact, a considerable amount of evidence that it doesn't stay in that one location and then disseminates throughout your body and concentrates in certain tissues. Yeah, I'll toss this in. Uh, my wife is, uh, has been examining data uh, with uh, blood drawn, and they're finding mRNA uh, two weeks after. And uh, uh, you know, clearly that's not even just being drawn from the injection site. Yeah, that, that's just blood draw. Uh, that's correct. And in fact, there have been other studies which shows that the, uh, the spike um, uh, persists for up to about two months afterwards. And it's only two months afterwards because I think that's the length of the study. Mm. If you actually took the study out further and looked at three, six months, you know, um, who knows? Um, perhaps um, it, it will all, you'll always be producing spike. So the argument here or the, the issue of contention is not an issue of pro or anti-vaccine. Am I right? Because that seems to be how people tend to like to wave the discussion away. And they, it, there seems to be an effort to vilify doctors who either don't take it and therefore put their patients in danger or say anything that may contribute to vaccine hesitancy. And it winds up being you're in either this box or this box. So, so clear this up for me. Is this a case of, broadly speaking, being anti-vaccine or pro-vaccine or is this something else? No, it is it's not. It is, uh, I would say a number of people have placed all of those people who have elected not to uh, take this vaccine in particular as anti-vaccine, and that is simply not true. Um, I have never, I have not met a healthcare worker who has refused to take any other type of vaccine. All of us have taken all of our vaccines. It's this one which we're hesitant to take. The reason is because um, this is number one, it's like no other vaccine. The technology is not standard vaccine technology. The way it was rolled out so quickly, the studies that were published, these are poorly done studies with only very short term um, results, two months, maybe six months at the most. Um, and a number of very unusual things happen in the development of this vaccine, not only was probably all related to the speed of the development of the vaccine. For instance, the animal studies that should precede human studies were never completed fully. This technology, mRNA technology, is really um, cell-based technology for cancer treatment it has never been effectively demonstrated that it is good treatment, even in those situations. And so with that background, I would say healthcare workers are naturally concerned for their own health, that you want me to take this in order to keep my job, but you're not telling me or you don't know any the long-term side effects of this. And so um, I would say, understandably, healthcare workers are concerned. There's one other thing, uh, Liam and uh, Matthew, is that um, during 2020, prior to the vaccines, all the healthcare workers were working. The vast majority did not get sick. However, mm. 
virtually everybody was exposed to the actual virus. And so virtually everybody has natural immunity. What the government has failed to do, it has failed to test these healthcare workers for evidence of natural immunity, but in, instead insists that they just take this jab. Whereas in fact, if you have natural immunity, you probably don't need this at all. Right, the process feels very suspect. Correct. But you know what, um, I just had a thought, since, uh, since you're a vascular surgeon, um, I'm curious about this. I, I came across an article um, the other day that uh, talked about research, and this is from April of 2020, April 21st of 2020. It said uh, a certain researcher um, found that blood clots, uh, I'll read this, these tiny blood clots could also be responsible for one of the unique symptoms of COVID-19. This article talks about research that said the blood clots uh, make the outcome worse. And uh, then I went and looked for the paper under this researcher's name and couldn't find a paper. But I was curious as to whether or not you saw that in patients. Well, um, for a vascular surgeon to get involved with a COVID patient is, number one, very unusual. Because these blood clots that people are talking about are, um, in my specialty, we look after blood vessels throughout the body with the exception of inside the brain and the heart. So mm. we are not cardiologists. We are not neurologists. We look, um, uh, we look after the blood vessels in your neck, going to your brain, in your chest, your abdomen, your, your arms, and your legs. On the other hand, um, at the beginning of the um, rollout of the vaccines, there were a, a number, a very limited number of, I would say, almost like celebrated cases of blood clots in the abdomen. And these were blood clots that were occurring in the major veins of the abdomen, a very unusual location for blood clots to occur. Blood clots most commonly occur in the veins of your legs. Um, and blood clots that occur spontaneously in your arteries is highly, highly unusual. The average vascular surgeon, I would say, probably saw, if they were lucky, one or two cases of actual blood clots in the body that was not related to what they typically see. So a blood clot that travels through your body most commonly occurs spontaneously as a result of it forming in your heart and then dislodging and traveling to other parts of your body. Um, and so uh, I have no personal experience of treating patients during that time. I've heard of stories of cases that have appeared. Um, and so our overall um, experience with this as a group of vascular surgeons is in fact quite limited. So can you walk us through what was the what was the timeline like through the pandemic period and then as the shots started rolling out in your personal situation what was your experience in the pandemic what did you uh notice was it first noticing that there was no discussion about natural immunity or what was the first thing in the entire crisis that set off warning bells for you I would say that um, 
The first publication that came out, that was the Pfizer publication in the New England Journal of Medicine of December 2020, set off warning bells for me personally. Um, up until that point, everybody was going on with the narrative that this is a dangerous virus, and it is, with variable uh, infection fatality rates um, throughout the world. Um, and everybody was looking forward to having this vaccine roll out because they believed, uh, and I think that all the healthcare workers also believed, that this was the solution to the problem. Uh, in fact, when that study came out, there was a huge relief um, on the part of all the physicians because now they knew that the vaccine was available and very um, superficially reading that paper, it would appear that the vaccines were um, highly, highly effective. And there is one graph in that um, seminal paper which shows the divergence of the um, COVID of, um, of developing COVID, COVID between the treated and the placebo groups. And everybody hung their hat on that one graphic. But there, therein, I think, is um, a little bit of obfuscation going on <clears throat> with statistics and graphs. <clears throat> um, because if you look at the actual axes um, on the vertical axis, it's a, it starts... Um, it's a broken axis. It, it, it doesn't, it starts at zero, but it breaks. And um, you can see that what they have done is that they have highlighted a very, very small difference. But if you read the paper, the, re the reason why the paper is flawed, uh, number one, is because the actual percentage of people who got COVID in that study whether you were vaccinated or not vaccinated was in fact tiny. Hmm. So you had about 30,000 people or so, 15,000 in each group. Um, and, but overall, very, very few people actually got COVID. So you are now measuring tiny differences between those who um, got the vaccine and got COVID versus those who didn't get the vaccine and got COVID. The actual difference comparing one to the other um, is what's, what um, epidemiologists call um, relative risk reduction. That was defined in the paper with a term never previously used called vaccine efficacy. Vaccine efficacy in that study was 94%, but it only compares the very, very small difference of one relative to the other. Vaccine efficacy is a term that should only be used to compare vaccines to vaccines. Mm. On an individual level, as a physician treating a patient, when the patient says, um, doc, what happens if I take the vaccine? What is the benefit to me? That benefit which was not reported in the study, but because they provide the numbers, if you knew how to calculate it, you could calculate it. That difference is known as the absolute risk reduction. And that difference is just under 1%. Yeah, under 1%. Correct. The reality is, is that if I was a doctor 
and the patient was in front of me and they asked specifically, what is the benefit of taking the vaccine? The answer to that is that if you take the vaccine, we can reduce your COVID risk by about 1%. Yeah, and um, it, I'm going to add to that, uh, if I can. Um, the, the thing that I immediately noticed about the paper uh, as a statistician myself was that the exclusions, that the differential in the exclusions in the two arms was greater than the absolute effect size. And I, I thought to myself, you know, I, I couldn't ethically sign off on on such a statement like vaccine efficacy, you know, if, if I were the uh, statistician on that. Um, one thing that I learned just recently that I hadn't heard anybody say before, and it took me a while to, to ferret this out, is um, there is such thing as tests that are confounded by vaccines. And this is something that ordinarily uh, a vaccine trial, like we don't think about this because it's something that happens in route to the, the you know, the, like a phase three trial is whatever methodology you're using to test for disease, um, that methodology methodology is checked uh, with some sort of like a smaller group before the big phase three trial to determine whether or not like a person who's vaccinated and a person who's unvaccinated have the same chance of testing positive. Are the sensitivity and specificity rates the change? Uh, are, are they the same? Or are they different or they, have they changed? And they didn't do that. They didn't do that prior to this trial. So no one actually knows whether or not the testing is valid. Correct. And so one of the, the, the big problems, or as other people call it fallacies, is um, what do you mean by a case? Right. And so the, the case definition is problematic. Um, and so a case typically in medical terms, involves two things. In other words, the patient has features of disease, and this means symptoms and signs. And secondly, there is a uh, test, a diagnostic test, which actually proves uh, that they actually had it. The, the problem with the this viral infection, and in all, in all likelihood uh, happens with all viral infections, is that um, there's no gold standard test to prove you have the virus. By that, what I mean is that the gold standard test is a term used by epidemiologists uh, to basically say, what is the best available test that will categorically prove that you have this? And so with a larger um, organism like a bacteria, it's fairly simple. You can culture bacteria. You can put them on uh, Petri dishes and things and you can culture it and you can grow it out of, a, a, let's say, a patient's um, bodily secretions, whether it's sputum, whether it's blood, it's urine, this type of thing. And you can grow that bacteria out. And if that bacteria, if there's a certain concentration level that it exceeds, then you say for sure, if the patient has symptoms and we have the bacterial evidence for it, you have this bacterial infection. The problem with this viral infection, like all viral infections, is that Viruses are tiny. Essentially, they are not alive. They require a live host to live and replicate. It is very, very difficult to grow virus and viral culture. Very few laboratories around the world can do this with any great uh, success. Because of that, you now need a proxy test to determine whether you have the virus or not. That proxy test 
was chosen as PCR, but the inventor of PCR, Kerry Mullis, developed it specifically as a forensic test. In other words, someone's DNA or some type of um, specimen, and you can you can go and search and you can make multiple copies to, to identify that one little piece of evidence. It was never used to be a medical diagnostic test. Well, and the other part of that being that uh, I've, and I've read just little bits of a book called Making PCR, which covers uh, the creation of the PCR. And it, it doesn't necessarily ascribe the creation entirely to, to Carrie Mullis. But what it does do is uh, describe it as being used as a research tool to be able to take very, 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 very small quantities of a material and make so many copies of it that it is now manipulatable for research purposes. So its entire point is it's like a, a photocopier. It's not you have this illness. So in both in the forensics, you know, situation you're describing or in the context of a, a genetic photocopier, it's you're, you're, you're right. It's misleading how it was applied. But this is all stuff that turns out you know, lay people aside who are just learning now, all of this is very well known. None of this is overly controversial. This is decades old science. Um, and I, I don't like using the, the term science like that, but for lack of a better word. And I, I, I just want to, I want to share this. I've been covering on our rounding the news, uh, weekly news segment, a couple things. Firstly, that Apparently now it's okay to discuss in the mainstream media that lockdown measures seem to have actually killed more people than COVID itself. And that's interesting and something that, to the theme, has been very obvious from before they were even implemented. Then, though, we have this. Around the world, uh, we have ambulances not showing up. We have paramedics who just don't appear to be there. And if you look, and I, I've now done this, I've been tracking this week to week across Canada uh, from coast to coast and in the United States from coast to coast. And I just saw one in passing from Australia. Dan Andrews had to uh, speak to that. It, it looks like this didn't exist in this way before. But can you speak to the healthcare situation zooming in here in British Columbia? I've been hearing for years that there is a crisis with family doctors or with the healthcare system that we are already not able to deliver the full capacity of care emergency or otherwise uh, access to specialists. Um, like I said, family doctors, very few people seem to have them. Can you take us through what the situation was pre COVID what happened during COVID and now can you speak to what we appear to be seeing in the healthcare system here? Uh, sure. So uh, pre-COVID in Canada, because um, there is a, it's a single-payer system, and that's a public system, and the government um, does not allow for any private um, medical care. And, you know, it's, it's quite, like, quite unlike the situation with dentistry. And so you essentially you have a monopoly. Um, the government decides what the budget will be, and they dole it out. Um, they, from there, the money is distributed to the various healthcare regions and they figure out what it is. There's a separate contract with the physicians and the, that number is capped. 
you cannot exceed that number. And so uh, what happens in Canada pre-COVID is that healthcare is becoming more expensive at a time when the population is getting older at a time when the governments are not building more hospitals to deal mm. with the crisis. And so as a result of that, you, the hospitals are filling up with patients. They're filling up so much there over the brim. And so we had um, patients lined up in the emergency rooms, you know, in the hallways, we had patients um, on the wards in what's known as hallway beds, um, just waiting for um, a bed to become available. In other words, a patient to be discharged so that they, they can actually go into that bed. The primary reason for patients being in that gridlock is because um, a number of patients who are now very, very elderly can't go home uh, even after they've had their care in the hospital. They need long-term care. There are inadequate long-term care beds, um, I would say uh, definitely in BC and likely throughout Canada. They've given this designation of alternate level of care when you are a patient and you should not be in an acute care hospital, but you should be somewhere else. But in fact, there's nowhere to send you. And so you are a bed blocker in that situation. On any given day, the percentage of ALC or alternate level care patients is about 20 to 25% of all the hospital beds. Let that sink in a little bit. One quarter of all your beds are now being filled by patients who really shouldn't be there because they've improved to such a point that they should be discharged, but there's nowhere for them to go. And so as a result, your bed capacity, and you're not even building hospitals, is now down by one quarter. While at the mean, meantime, you have um, an increasing age, uh, age group um, and they're all clamoring for health care. That's a problem in the hospitals where are, there are inadequate beds to, uh, for long-term care patients to be transferred to. And that has been a problem for, oh, I would say um, at least uh, three decades or so. Um, they had sufficient um, warning that this was uh, going to come, but government after government has never addressed this issue. The other problem is the creation of new beds for the hospitals. Um, I was around when the first hospital in Vancouver was basically removed, and that was Shaughnessy Hospital. And Shaughnessy Hospital at the time maybe had three or 400 beds. Um, so where did those patients go? They were simply absorbed into the other surrounding hospitals with the promise that, well, uh, maybe... Um, they will build a new hospital, which they never did. And in fact, Shaughnessy Hospital was converted into a bunch of administrative offices. A different kind of hospital, perhaps. Correct, correct. And so, but what about uh, what about the family doctor crisis? Because that seems like a separate issue happening concurrently. The family doctor crisis has been brewing for a number of years, and it has been. Um, it's the end result of, um, I would say. There are a number of problems um, along the way. I would say it starts probably at the medical school level um, where you are, are having 
medical students being selected, they're all smart. They all have good grades. But what distinguishes you as a medical student to get into medical school? And what they like to see is they like to see um, probably two things. They like to know what you do. In other words, are you an athlete? Are you a musician? Are you an artist? Do you have a different type of background? Are you well-traveled? Are you a volunteer? And all those adds up to points. Well then, so you have now got an entire cadre of extremely well-rounded, smart people as your doctors. What happens to these people when they graduate? Are they gonna do medicine 100% of the time? Heck no. They wanna go back to being an athlete, an artist, a musician, a volunteer, a traveler, and who can deny them? Nobody can deny them. You selected these people. And at the end result, you're gonna be living with these people. It is now estimated that, I, I'm, I'm like an old fogey. Um, <laughs> it, takes, it takes two trainees to replace one old guy. Let that sink in. UBC Medical School has tripled its enrollment over the last 20 years. Used to be they would just produce 100 doctors annually. They're now up to about 290 graduates. What, how I, um, a medical student chooses family practice, on one hand, is partially by choice that they choose it, but it's also by necessity. Because once you get your MD, you can't go and practice. You have to do a residency in hmm. Canada. And there is a residency in family practice as well. Now that residency funding comes from the government. The government has allocated that 70% of all residency positions will be in family practice. So 70% of the 290 graduates that UBC puts out every year are in family practice residencies. That sounds like that should be, there should be a lot of family practitioners. What happens afterwards? They get out into the real world. They don't like it. Why don't they like it? Because they discover that they are not trained to be small business people mm -hmm. like all physicians are. You don't have the training to run a little company, look after staff. You feel that your billings for this is, are inadequate. You feel that your overhead is too high. There is an alternative. And the alternative is a salaried position in a hospital or a salaried position in a walk-in clinic. You don't have these hassles. You don't have to worry about staff or overhead or anything like that. You just go punch in and punch out. Most of these graduates would prefer to do that. Punch in and punch out because that they can then carry on with the other aspect of their lives, which was so much more interesting before. In other words, <laughs> they can be an athlete. They can be an artist. They can be a musician just like before and still have their job as a doctor and don't have to deal with all the other stuff. That, that's a great point. I, I think that that's actually, um, that's affecting, it may affect medicine more than other professions, but I think that 
in the Western world, we have gone too far away from not uh, not having the experiences growing up that teach people how to run small businesses and basic finance. I think basic finance may be uh, among the things that we do worst. And uh, it used to be um, 160 years ago in the United States, 70% of American families had uh, a business in the home. That was uh, ordinary. It was the norm. Um, having run a few small businesses, um, you know, it, it, it's not as complicated as people think. It always feels irritating, you know, to get it started. Um, really, the beginning, the, the basic paperwork is the hardest thing. But that, that's that's less paperwork than people, uh, you know, go through applying to medical school. <laughs> so, you know, it, it's not as bad as people think, ultimately, at the end of the day. But um, we're probably not doing enough to make people comfortable with it. Um, but, uh, wow, that, that that's an amazing thing that it would affect something as important as medicine that, yeah, systemically. Um, I just want to take a brief sidebar and thank McClay. We have just received our first super chat after becoming YouTube partners, which was a very exciting day for us yesterday. So I just want to briefly give a huge thank you to McClay. It was yesterday Tiny our first day as, uh, as being YouTube partners? It is. Or and your, <laughs> York, you would assume that the kind of things we're talking about wouldn't be allowed on YouTube. But I'm wondering if the tide is changing a little bit. Particularly because in this instance, you are a medical professional. You are very qualified to speak on the things you're speaking of. Um, but anyway, so we were rather surprised to learn yesterday that we had been approved after review by Google. Um, so, yes, McClay, thank Sorry. you so much. Even tiny support is you don't understand how big a deal that is to us. So much appreciated. And they, um, they did they did uh, restrict some of our videos. So, <laughs> yes. um, but, uh, you know, we're happy that they haven't removed any, um, you know, so far so good. You know, we'll, we'll keep having exactly the conversations we want to have. And that's important because, York, there are, there are specific things that uh, really need to become more well-known. Uh, we've already discussed the issues related to the shots, you know, the risks in taking them. We've discussed the broader state of the healthcare system, which isn't something, again, that's hidden or controversial. It's, it's well-known, and, and frankly, it's well-discussed even in the media. The question is, who gets blamed for it? And there was certainly a period where it was all the unvaccinated being blamed for the backlog in hospitals and the ability to get health care. Um, it's my understanding that was never the case. That, that sort of seemed to be blaming a group for a, a problem that already existed pre-COVID, and then B, problems being caused in the specific context of the COVID crisis that just exacerbated the issue. Um, now, I want to share very briefly um, my screen here, if I can, because you, sir, uh, spoke to us at a citizen's hearing, which took place in Toronto uh, at the end of June. I'm just going to play about 30 seconds of the intro here for those who haven't seen it. Um, and then I'd like to ask you a, a couple questions about it. Thank you for allowing me to speak at the citizens' hearing. Uh, my name is York Shun. Um, in my professional life, uh, I was a vascular surgeon as well as a professor of surgery. I have lost both of those positions as a result of the mandates. Um, but I'm not really here to talk about my professional life and the impact that the mandates have had on me. But um, something I think is much more important that the impact of the mandates on my personal life. Uh, I have a mother and she is now very old. 
Um, she has never told me her actual date of birth, but I am estimating it is probably about 98 this year. Uh, my mother was uh, admitted to a nursing home in November 2019 as a result of a fracture of her hip, which um, resulted in her no longer being able to walk. So I, I don't want to just simply replay what you've already said, um, but the, I found that to be a very compelling testimony you gave. And I was wondering if, again, not asking you simply to repeat what you already said there, but could you give a quick rundown of your experience with the congregate care setting, you know, the long-term care facilities, um, your experience with your mother and trying to balance, you know, everyone's health and balance the rules of the long-term care facility and where that is all now, how, uh, how the restrictions are these days, what the situation is. Uh, I think that if you, um, I think two things are, have been missing in, in this all COVID narrative. Um, one is that um, give us the big picture. In other words, how many people die every year? Which, um, you know, in which age groups do people die? All right. Uh, the other is um, if you're going to bring out a policy, why don't you also bring out an evaluation of your policy? And I think those are two big things that are just completely missing. So let me, uh, with that uh, in mind, let me go back and, and say that when a patient enters long-term care, the average is that they will live nine months. And that's the end of your life. Why are we trying so hard to prevent what is simply a natural part of your life? Um, and so in my mother's case, um, and I, I'm sure with a, a, lot, a lot of um, elderly people in long-term care, when you know that you've come to the, the end of the, the road, this is the final stop, so to speak, how many of them were actually given a choice about, do you want to continue to see your relatives on the off chance that a relative could infect you and take the remainder of your limited number of days, but you're still with them? Or do you want to be locked down and not see them and die alone? That is simply the case. When you're in long-term care, you have a very limited amount of time left. Don't you want to spend a limited number of amount of time with your loved ones? Why would you want to spend it in an institution of strangers or worse that you're locked in your room? Even Why worse. That, correct. It, Why it, wasn't that you know, put forward as a choice? Yeah, and on top of that, um, uh, the authorities created an atmosphere of fear. And I, I've experienced, I've watched families have, you know, conversations or even, you know, close to shouting matches over, you know, whether or not it was reasonable to, you know, mix the family together, um, you know, on, on all, all various levels, right. For some people, it's more, you know, some people have higher anxiety over those things than others, but um, creating contention in families over a fear that is minimal, you know, uh, it's its impact is minimal where whereas um the impact of of you know losing you know touch communication with loved ones that's that's life mm -hmm. that's what life is mm -hmm.
And uh, and and there is that additional uh, element of the acceleration of illness and death in particularly the elderly population who it would appear. It's my understanding. Once again, this is well documented that, in fact, isolation, solitude does speed up the development of rapid onset dementia, um, which is itself fatal, if I'm not mistaken. But various uh, reasons to live shorter lives. When you remove the family, you you can and and I've seen this as well. Uh, instances of uh, elderly couples who are separated for similar uh, reasons, who then die of heartbreak because they can't see their yeah, significant other. Dementia is is one of the top comorbidities. It's sometimes not listed on some lists, but it is one of the top comorbidities for COVID nineteen. So it, it primes people to be harmed more when they do get sick. So, York, what has happened with your um, – can you just walk us briefly through how you managed this situation with your mother? Um, well, I'll try not to repeat what I said on the citizens' hearing. Um, uh, essentially, um, during COVID, we weren't allowed to, to see loved ones at all. They, they, they basically locked us out. You know, you had long-term care homes. They had outbreaks of COVID. It's not particularly surprising. You're congregating people together there. A lot of these elderly people, they're very poor immune systems. Um, and so what do you expect? Um, as, the, as the situation appeared to get better throughout society, you, know, you no longer had to mask or social distance as much as before. They still had the same policy, though, in the long-term care facilities that um, you had to be vaccinated when you want to come in and see your loved ones. On top of that, you're, we're gonna apply a rapid antigen test uh, for you um, if, if you wanna come in. Um, and for me, that meant that even though the rest of society is opening up, you are still not allowing me to come in and see my mother. Uh, I just could not believe that. But every cloud has a bit of a silver lining. And so the silver lining in my case was that my brother from Australia came to visit my mother and he, unlike me, he's asleep. And so he's been fully vaccinated. And so he went in and got my mother and I was basically on the, on the other side of the street. So once he brought my mother out of the care home, I could come and join them. And so we would then go and we would have a little one hour outing and then we would take them back. And then as he continued to do that, uh, they had a policy that your rapid antigen test was only good for three days. And then after that, we're going to have to retest you. And after after two of those tests, my brother was sick and tired of it. And he said, um, can I just, you know, dispense with a rapid antigen test? You know, I just want to take my mother out. And they said, oh, sure. Here, we'll just wheel your mother out without the rapid <laughs> antigen test. And then as they did that, it became uh, more favorable to me because then I asked my brother, I said, well, you're going to leave in a week or so. Why don't you just ask them, just push, you know, push mom out the door and I'll just catch her when she comes out and then I'll just take her on our way. And so that's what I've done. And so my brother has now gone back to Australia and I continue to see my mother, but they have to push her out the door. Um, and in fact, I think the staff actually enjoy that, you know, because <laughs> they are, they too are working under this ridiculous idea that you know you can't come in because of blah blah blah. You know some policy has been established, but they know that they are denying what is the most um, useful, effective, and humane thing to do. In other words, get these relatives together, and so they're more than happy to just push my mom out the door, and I just essentially catch her, 
and then you know uh, we go in her and she she's in a wheelchair we just go out for a little outing and i bring her back and i say same time tomorrow and they say oh yeah no problem and so that's what i've been able to do and so so long as the weather's been nice and warm it's been great i just i'm not sure what's going to happen you know when they when the bad weather comes back you know maybe they'll push her out the door there's some benches um, outside that institution as if the air that rarefied air is somehow different between being outside <laughs> or inside the building um, but we'll we'll sit outside and maybe i'll just bring a bunch of hot water bottles and things and so long as there is some type of solution that is sort of manageable well, I, that is that is tremendously heartwarming, and I uh, I'm my so you mentioned as well like the lifespan once you enter long term care the average is eight or eight or you know eight or nine months, and it very first of all very much seems that your mom has surpassed that is that right like she's that's correct. so that's that's just this is a moment to just be very thankful I think like this is an example of how even in this ridiculousness there are still bright spots and I think many, many instances like you just described happening around the world that we just don't hear about because they are perhaps um, little, you know, wink, wink, nudge, nudge. We're not technically breaking the rules uh, kind of setups, but also it's controversy that gets us, you know, in the news. So it's just, it's just heartwarming to hear what you just said and to know um well, it's certainly a happier situation uh, than uh, it feels like oftentimes. And so my mom uh, had cancer and wound up in hospice and um, she got probably two days in before um, before she passed. And it's a very different situation. Um, but I understand the importance of being with uh with you know with with a parent with a family member with someone you care about when it's possible the time is limited i suppose is a good way to articulate that and i've thought about that often hearing actually particularly hearing your story at a citizens hearing and and others as well i've thought about what would i like would i have survived if my mom had been dealing with her cancer and gone into hospice during covid and i wasn't allowed to spend those very challenging but very important last couple of days with her if i was not allowed in if i was told i would be a threat to her um you know even the insinuation makes me very upset so i'm very i'm just i'm heartwarmed to hear that it's it's worked out pretty well. The other thing that's interesting about that is what you say about it seems as though again no one's breaking any rules here, but there seems to be a sense that that even the healthcare workers uh, are starting to in this context go come on guys this doesn't really make sense we're we'll, staying within the confines of the rules put on us we will you know act rationally. Do you get that sense? anywhere else or is that limited do you just have a particularly good care home for your mom are there healthcare workers in other contexts who are again not speaking up not breaking the rules but quietly beginning to in their tiny ways rebel or simply question well um having been effectively shut out of the hospital i, I can't really comment on that um, i would have thought that it's um it's kind of is a parallel to you may have heard about a bunch of, let's say, CBSA officers about whether or not they're going to, you know, enforce this arrive can. Um, it seems like that um, there are a number that do not insist upon it. 
Um, there are a few sticklers, though. And so I would have thought that uh, a ride can just creates just a bunch of work and a bunch of headache for these um, officers. And so yeah, let's that, before we continue on that, let's give some context because we we happily are reaching an audience who uh, uh, we we don't in the CCCA, the Canadian COVID Care Alliance, for example, don't always get to address. So a lot of American and international viewers. So what is first of all, what's the CBSA, and also what is ArriveCan? Can you give some background there? Oh sure, um, CBSA <laughs> is an acronym for the Canadian Border Services Agency, and so they're the customs officers that you will see when you're coming into Canada, they're the guys that are gonna look at your passport, et cetera. Uh, ArriveCan is a um, federal government um, attempt at creating an app to um, identify whether you have been vaccinated and your vaccination series is up to date or not. And so what it, what it does is that, um, and Canada is one of the very few countries that's actually still doing something like this, you know. Um, and what it does is that it creates, um, I would say, tension and anxiety uh, for the travelers coming in to make sure that they either have the app, they have all the relevant information to it, or you're not going to you're not going to do this. It, it's a it's a ridiculous thing, you know, because as let's say a Canadian citizen or a Canadian resident, you have every right to enter your own country. You don't really need this app at all just to get back home. And so the Canadian Border and Services agents, they all know that you have this right to come back home and whether you have a RICAN or not, it is just an imposition on the traveler um, that they need this piece of paper to come in. And so the comparable situation is um, in hospitals where in fact you are taking some nurses, I suspect, from the wards where they're, you know, are always short staffed and putting them at the front of the hospital to screen who's ever coming into the hospital to make sure that they're vaccinated. And so, again, that is, um, I don't know why they do that policy, um, you know, thinking that uh, somehow you're preventing COVID from being brought into the hospital unnecessarily, um, um, but uh, what it does do is that the redistribution of that labor force, I think, is um, not only unnecessary, but it probably is counterproductive because the real labor is actually done elsewhere where it's most needed in the hospital. If I can, if I can just pull up, there's a clip. Uh, we were off camera talking about um, a gentleman named, well, it goes by Viva Fry on, uh, on online video. And this is something he's been covering uh, quite a bit. And I just want to show what happens. This ArriveCan app, uh, here, here's what happened to him as he came in with his uh, daughter who was unvaccinated uh, into Canada. This is, this is following their entry. Yeah, this is, this is they. Who's this? Um, I am, uh, would you like to continue to call it English or French? Uh, let's go with English. English. Okay. 
Uh, I confirm that yes, we arrived in Canada Tuesday. Okay, and overhead indicated Veshki is it on VAP Community Traveler entering Canada? Yeah. On VAP Community um, Traveler entering Canada. Who do not meet the Canadian definition of fully vaccinated are required to be in quarantine for a minimum of 14 days. Is she under quarantine as Oh, excuse me, in virtue of what is she supposed to be in quarantine for 14 days? Yes. No, in virtue of what? Because she's unvaccinated. No, but, but what, what, that, that's, uh, that's not my understanding of the law. What do you mean by your understanding of what the provision, law? What provision of law are you suggesting requires my daughter to be in 14 days of quarantine? Um, she's under the federal quarantine actor. No, but what provision of law is it? Because I, I, I know. But the I know. I've read the Quarantine Act. I've studied the Quarantine Act. What provision of law? Because she tested negative. We've had COVID within the last 180 days. Under what provision of law? Sir, the international. <laughs> but I, I'm, I'm telling you, I've, I've, I've read the quarantine act. There is nothing in it. It's, it's more of that. Um, wow. And like that's, uh, you can hear him, like almost shaking with. He described it uh, later as rage, but also like uh, what I felt was like Orwellian fear. Um, so that's arrive, Ken. <laughs> you know, a, a lot. Of, a lot of people, uh, are, you know, express their frustration, saying, um, "You know, it feels like there's almost like a test of how much arbitrary, um, you know, arbitrary hoops to jump through, right?" And and it's some sort of a, a power training exercise, perhaps, right? Like, what what is this really? You know, how rational is it? Um, it, it it just doesn't make a lot of sense. I, you know, I'm, I'm going to say something real quick for uh, Americans who may be watching um, who don't know how different things are in Canada than the U.S. Um, that, you know, that <laughs> that phone call was one example. But um, uh, I have a, a doctor friend. I'm not going to say his name out loud. And, and York, you may know him, but um, he has been forced to make statements on his physician's website that are the opposite of what he actually believes about medical treatment. And like just finding that out that's just horrifying like I, I i you know it would i i'm not even sure how i would handle that but that just feels like one of the most uh one of the worst possible abuses which is for somebody to say that your professional opinion is the opposite of what it is um and there's another doctor this one's more public so i can say his name but uh, uh dr daniel nagasi who was um really just assaulted in a courtroom um, which really, you know, um, uh, did you not hear that story, Liam? Uh, um, I don't. I don't think not the assault story. Uh, he he was basically uh, tackled and choked by a bailiff for not showing. Um, uh, I don't know exactly how the courtroom works in Canada, but like there are three entries of the judge, and I, and there's not like a law that says that you have to like stand in respect for the judge or something like that, but. Um, it, it insulted the bailiff that he didn't. And so the bailiff just attacked him. And you know, I'm, I'm, it probably wouldn't have happened ordinarily, but here he was a doctor who was bucking the trend, 
you know, mm. and that's why he was there in the courtroom to begin with. So, um, you know, that that's stuff that that Americans have often had conversations about. I remember being in high school psychology class, like, you know, uh, you know how could these things, ha- you know, could, could these things ever happen here? And I think that they're closer than people think, though we, we've had a, a little bit less to deal with in the U.S. so far, at least. Yeah, well, and and York's right, though, we do have a constitution that makes it very clear that Canadians have uh, an unalienable right to enter their own country to return home. Now, going into the States is a different story or going to a country who they are not sovereign to. That's a different story. But coming into the country, if you've been allowed into a different country and then you come back home, that is a constitutionally protected uh, right freedom that cannot be withheld. Now we do have, as Canadians have learned, and we've talked about before with, with Sonia Anderson and Mark Bashaw, first Lieutenant Bashaw, we are constitute. We don't really know much about ourselves as Canadians and we don't, uh, have the same level of reverence for our constitution. Um, I didn't even know we had a constitution until about a year ago, to be honest. Uh, I, I didn't know that, uh, we technically, uh, actually not even technically, we literally legally on the record can have all of our rights and freedoms suspended temporarily by the government so long as they can justify it. Uh, now, what we're dealing with in the courts now is they're finally having to justify it. And so perhaps that's a good transition. Um, your, can you tell us about the request for judicial review that you have brought? And could you give us the whole story there? Well, thank you very much for that. Um, I'll, I'll try and be brief about it. Um, and so what it is is that um, last November was um, probably the last time that all healthcare workers who chose not to receive the vaccine um, were let go. Um, and that is the November mandate, which specifically says that um, if you're a healthcare worker and you work in hospitals, clinics, etc., you need to be vaccinated or you will be terminated. Um, and, and a number of us have um, come together, created a society, uh, and have uh, retained a law, in fact, two law firms. Um, and we are proceeding, requesting a judicial review. Um, a judicial review is different in the sense that there is one judge who is reviewing um, the actions or the policies of one person or that person's office. And that person is Dr. Bonnie Henry, who's our provincial health officer, and that is her office. And we are specifically saying in in this judicial review that the November 18 mandate is um, long overdue and should no longer um, be active, based on two accounts. Um, in that review, it says that um, there is an emergency which entitles a provincial health officer to have all of these powers. And so we're basically saying, is it still reasonable to say that we are still in an emergency now, where, in fact, society is completely widely open as before, with maybe some restrictions on people traveling back to Canada, this type of thing. Um, The other aspect of the judicial review is to ask a judge to say, now that we have 
been through Omicron, and we know that the vaccine doesn't prevent you from having getting Omicron and certainly doesn't stop you from transmitting Omicron, is it still reasonable to continue with this policy knowing that the vaccinated can get the disease and can transmit equally as like unvaccinated healthcare workers? And that's, it's, that is the basis of the judicial review. It's going through the courts. The government um, has to respond by September 15, which is not too far from now, about 10 days. Mm. Um, we expect that there's going to be a lot of pushback from the government to either try and dismiss uh, our case altogether, um, uh, as well as to um, deny um, cross-examination of the expert witnesses. So that, that's going to be our first hurdle. But there has been a date set, and that is late November, November 28, for 10 days for the judicial review. Ours is one of four reviews that's going forward uh, and to be reviewed by this one justice. And that's the interesting thing is, so if, let's say there's a, a reality, as Matthew suggested, where there's more to this than meets the eye, uh, whatever it whatever it is, whatever the intention is, but whatever it is requires there to be sort of a narrative that is consistent, uh, you know, messaging to keep people thinking, whatever the intended message is. At this point, when you have courts, not just in Canada, but in Commonwealth countries, including the United States around the world, which share legal precedent and are recognized by each other in various contexts, isn't it the case that we're starting to see inconsistencies? And like you say, we have um, multiple cases, and I'm pulling one up now, that are at various, they're at various points uh, in their process. But for example, this one from the Canadian Society for the Advancement of Science and Public Policy, otherwise known as the COVID Constitutional Challenge BC. This is one of the four, if I'm not mistaken, that you're uh, being joined together with. But their case has, uh, or, or perhaps more generally, these cases are revealing evidence or they're, they're, they're bringing statements forward from public health officials that uh, perhaps six months ago when they were made maybe seemed like they could be true. And then now, for example, sorry for jumping around so much, just to bring up another similar case. Actually, this happened quite literally in Alberta. We have... Um, Dr. Dina Hinshaw, who is the provincial health officer there, who, uh, based on her testimony, uh, like I said, uh, several months ago, she, she basically said she wasn't aware of such and such. Now, it turns out, on the record, she was aware of such and such. But decisions have been made thus far in various cases and also just in public policy on the premise that what she said was accurate. My point being... Is it the case now that that these these court actions are starting to shake loose inconsistencies? What are you seeing in that regard? Well, I, I agree with you, Liam, that um, there appears to be um, a number of dominoes slowly starting to fall. Um, and one would have thought that um, if a policy was being struck down, for instance, uh, in Alberta, they're hiring back all of their unvaccinated healthcare workers. 
Mm. Um, they they feel oh yeah they feel that um, their uh, healthcare crisis one of the ways of um, managing it better would be to hire back all these unvaccinated folks. Um, in BC, we're the adjacent province. Why haven't we done anything like that? It, it's it seems um, paradoxical in a way when our entire healthcare system is in flames, and that you couldn't do something as simple as this. It would cost the government absolutely nothing, and yet bring. Um, it would show the benevolence of the government, perhaps, that they were generous enough to bring back the uh, unvaccinated healthcare workers. But the problem is that they would need to issue an apology. So maybe they just can't do that, um, which is um, kind of tragic from the, from the government's point of view, as well as you know all of these un, uh, unvaccinated healthcare workers. We want to work. We can offer something to the people of BC. We've been doing this job for years. We have lots of experience. Just let us come back and work. In all likelihood, if you tested every one of us, we probably all have natural immunity. There is no way that we are going to infect or transmit this in the care of our patients. It feels like there's a designed lack of accountability on the level of public officials. And, I, and I, I've worried that there are people making use of something like the wrong gear, like the wrong speed of action in the sense that uh, the amount of time that it takes for court decisions to take place, the amount of time that it takes for things to change is not fast enough to solve the potential damage. People go, well, you know, the, the, this virus was an emergency. I, I personally question that. I, I do know the spike protein is is a you know it's a it's a different it's more damaging I I don't think that you know from what I've seen in retrospect I don't think that it was ever really an emergency we were you know we were sold scary pictures on TV um, <clears throat> on the other hand when when I see um, so many people seem to be doing worse health wise from lockdowns when I see you know uh, food you know, supply chain distribution failures around the world, people starving. And I think while the damage could be so much worse, I think, well, the speed at which they can make poor decisions and and the slowness with which they are unwound, that's the crisis. I, I can't agree with you more. It's, it certainly feels like that the whole thing has been managed at a very high level. Um, and in a way, why are they punishing us? It's, it seems like one of those um, Stalin type of tactics is that uh, if you want to disperse a ruling uh, crowd, you just shoot a few of them. Um, and then that just sets an example for the rest of the crowd and they just all go home. And so maybe that's exactly what they're trying to do. They're just trying to send a message that if you speak out, we're just going to fire you. Um, we're just going to get rid of all these bad actors. Um, at the same time, judges being judges, um, they have enormous deference to the government, believing that the government should know what it's doing. Um, unless there is compelling evidence, um, they're not going to change government policy. The fortunate thing is that by the slowness of everything, it has allowed for other jurisdictions to come out with their findings. And so the judges, I'm sure that they're aware of these other findings as well. And now it's not so clear that the government's position is so clear cut. And so that's what we're hoping for. And that at the judicial review, 
um, the justice may see it that it is no longer reasonable to say that we are still living in this emergency situation. It is not um, uh, no longer reasonable to keep um, healthcare workers who are healthy and capable of working on the sidelines. Yeah, deference, um, deference to the government in a circumstance like this almost feels like presumption of guilt for everyone else. Mm -hmm. And uh, if, if we're going to have that, I feel like, well, why not presumption of guilt on the uh, you know, vaccine manufacturers first or, or you know, those who are making new decisions, um, experimental decisions, but just throwing it out there, there's some sort of an analogy to be made, and I don't know what the exact right words are, uh, but uh, the, the standards seem to be very, very different. Now, York, before the show, we were talking briefly about what we wanted to make sure we covered. And one of the things you you mentioned was the possibility of public health restrictions coming back in some form this fall. Now, depending on where you are in the world, uh, let's just limit to North America, depending on where you are in, in North America, Canada and the United States, there are some jurisdictions that have already begun attempting to reintroduce certain restrictions. I'll give a couple of examples. In Los Angeles County in California, uh, they were planning to announce the implementation of another mask mandate. But then a number of very wealthy cities came out and said, we will not enforce this for their own reasons. What happened next? Well, the LA County people had a change of heart. They're not going to do the mandate. Interesting how the science changes. In, um, oh man, there was another example that I can't remember now. But regardless, they are, they are happening across um, Canada and the States. So with that, what do you see happening in British Columbia? And do you think we're going to go the same route as other jurisdictions is it going to be more fragmented this time in attempts not in success uh, necessarily um what are you what are you looking ahead to the fall and seeing um i think that it is going to be an interesting fall um because i think that the government is going to try and bring back um, mandates of various types and i think that the government here is probably like the government elsewhere they're basically ruled based on polls um, and so if the polling that, the, that they're doing or someone else is doing on behalf of the government shows that people are still scared, they want to mask up for winter, uh, they want to bring back social distancing, they want to have the boosters available for them, I think you'll see that the government's going to try and roll this out. Um, on the other hand, I'm hopeful that um, a number of people have learned their lesson that having two, three, four COVID jabs doesn't stop you from getting COVID. And at some point, I hope that the light bulb goes on. It's like, huh, I thought I was supposed to not get COVID by getting the jab. So how come I got COVID after I got the jab? You know, in fact, I didn't get it once. I got it twice. I got it three times. In fact, everyone in my family got, has got it. What's going on? I hope that there'll be more and more people who wake up to that question that how effective have all these jabs been? Um, at the same time, you've had a, we've had a glorious summer in BC. You know, um, most places have been pretty much back to normal. You know, people are enjoying life in, in British Columbia. You know, they're going maskless for the um, 
majority of the time, I would say, you know, why can't that continue? Um, I would say that it's going to be an interesting dynamic because, you know, Canada has um, procured, I'm guessing, I don't know, millions more of these vaccines. And so there is going to be a huge push by the federal government onto the provincial governments. For instance, you know, it's, it's kind of interesting that um, you would have thought that economically the provinces will really be in bad shape after COVID. So why was 2021 a bumper year for BC? Why was it a bumper year for Alberta? Why did all these provinces actually have a surplus of money? You know, that's what their the Treasury secretaries have been saying. We got a surprising, you know, um, surplus. And they don't give us a breakdown, but I suspect that they were paid off. You know, let's say well, a billion dollars from Ottawa to just to push out these vaccines that will sort of add to your bottom line. Of course, you know, that could help. At the same time that um, the federal government is trying to push these out, if enough um, people resist this, the federal government, what's it going to have? What's it going to do? If it basically says, well, we don't really need so many vaccines because we can't give it out to our citizens, we're not going to buy it and donate it and give it to another country that probably would have expired by then, it's going to have a profound effect on the stock prices of all these pharmaceutical companies because they have to project what their earnings are going to be. And if their earnings come very, um, they're, they're short, they don't come out to what the projections are, that will affect the stock price. And so that's a really interesting dynamic that's going to go on um, in the fall. And, and it's an even bigger projection than almost anyone would imagine because there are 81 mRNA vaccines in trial. As of two two weeks ago, I heard Jill Malone say that, uh, 81, um, that, that's a lot. And it, clearly this is being um, advertised as a platform for lots of things and uh uh who knows exactly how that road's going to unfold but um if they can make this first one look the best possible then perhaps in some at some moment their stock price is the best possible it might even be a trading opportunity for those who hold the most stock right um they they may just want it to go to some level and then divest themselves of their investments so um, lots of possible games that could be going on you know, with all of this. And um, when you see those kinds of games, um, th there's something that needs to be reined in. There's some sort of investigation that needs to be done. And, and you know, you're totally right, York. And they're also not only did well over a year ago, Prime Minister Trudeau announce enough boosters. I think it's like for three a year per person or something like that up until 2026. Those may not be accurate numbers, but that's not an obscene exaggeration if I'm wrong. Um, but that was before the, that was with the original product. Now they've introduced this bivalent, in fact, these bivalent products from both Pfizer and Moderna. And as far as I understand, those don't get retroactively looped into the original deals. Even if they do, doesn't that also fly in the face of everything we've been told, everything we understand scientifically, and uh, I, just frankly, everything that's been said? Like, what, what sense can be made about offering, in addition to these millions and millions and millions of boosters that have already been ordered? Keeping in mind, of course, that Canada had, I, I think at peak, 
almost 90% double jab. Now, of course, we don't have fully vaccinated. We have up to date every three months, I believe was the last thing they said. Um, but how can that be reconciled? N knowing that they've ordered millions and millions and millions of extra doses and now ordered millions of doses of a new thing when it's unclear also who's supposed to get the new thing in fact, it's my understanding. Let's say I'm an unvaccinated person and I wanted I'm excited about this new uh, bivalent shot, um, which we can perhaps explain in, in more detail in a second. But let's say I'm excited about it and I want to go get it. As far as I understand, before I do that, I have to take three of the original to then qualify. So. What is and then you get into what's our current time frame in between doses because that has changed frequently. Uh, am I still allowed to mix and match? So it would take me almost until next year to be able to qualify for this new product. So what's going on? <laughs> and what is a bivalent shot? Also, you know, my understanding of a bivalent shot is probably a combination. Of um, uh, perhaps it's the COVID and the flu vaccine. Other, other people oh. can correct me uh, if you know, if I'm wrong, but um, I would say that you should not have the shot. Uh, and the reason for it is that, as sketchy as the um, trials were for the COVID mRNA vaccines, this is sketchier because there is no background to these shots there's been no experimental group or control group with these shots. They have made this, they have said, oh, you know, um, it's safe and efficacious, just like the last one, trust us. And they're just gonna roll it out. And so you are- And mud is water for the current ongoing experiment. Correct. It, it will make it harder for people to point and say, um, the mRNA vaccines caused this, or the COVID-19 vaccines in general caused this. Uh, the more things that we do at once, uh, you know, this, the pediatricians, you know, say, uh, introduce one food at a time to your toddler. Uh, but here we are, you know, just throwing out, you know, new product after new product. Uh, it just seems, uh, it seems insane. I think that's a good analogy. So, Look, we're, we're coming up to the end here, and um, I think it's important to look at uh, solutions. I think that's really why these discussions are so important, is because we can not only learn, we can then use our new knowledge that we gain from each other and our different perspectives to start to seek solutions collaboratively. So with there's the obvious fact that you've filed a request for judicial review. Um, so I, I'm going to ask you both broadly and then more specifically. So what what is the overarching issue at the heart of this what is the problem that we need to face before any of this can be truly solved the overarching problem of this is one of informed consent um, and so everybody especially if you're going to bring out um, anything um, you're mandating people to take there needs to be informed consent and so in this situation, there was no informed consent. Um, there was no description of the risks or the alternatives in particular. There's only a, a brief discussion of the benefits of it. And you, as we can see from these actual studies, the benefits was actually very little. Um, that's the overarching issue. And I think that um, informed consent needs to be brought back into the fore. And even if you choose not to receive something that 
has marginal benefit or is experimental, you shouldn't be forced to take it. Um, so medical ethics, you know, like we've 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 had an issue uh, informed consent very specifically, but it almost seems like it's we've missed a bit of a boat on that one. That's one of those mistakes that we can't take back in terms of any damage that has or will occur as a result of actions already taken. This is why you don't rush into things. Um, but but certainly bringing it back into the fold, as you say, can be done at this point for anything they give from now on. And part of informed consent, correct me if, if you disagree, is helping to understand what went wrong in the first place and helping to disseminate that knowledge and improve the overall wisdom of humanity. Because we have seen a controlled flow of information that leaves people like my dad thinking I'm crazy for not wanting to take the shot. Um, would, would you say that's true? Is, is, is education both looking ahead, but also looking back, an important piece of this? Education is absolutely a vital part of it. Um, and education requires that you have um, a broad thoughts that you're educating people with. And the broad thoughts include a number of varied opinions. Mm. And you have a receptive audience willing to accept all of these broad thoughts. Now, that's a very good point you just said, the varied opinions, because one of the uh, well, there's been a couple of, of issues that I've been observing that I've taken it upon myself to try to reconcile. There's a few of them. One of them is the political angle, the classic conservative liberal or Democrat Republican divide, where you tend to find people with very strong views on either side of that on a variety of issues. This issue in particular doesn't seem to be one of one of those issues. What I've found is I've wound up, despite having spent four years, uh, well, very much not liking the idea of anyone who voted for Trump. I now find myself in alignment with individuals, not not with not with the political side, but with the people who happen to vote for Trump and have ideas in that area that I didn't necessarily come into with. Uh, and this is just an example. It, it turns out there's a lot of common ground there that I, I now realize perhaps I was a little closed minded to certain people. But the point is, the political divide is one. The other is for example, uh, pro-vax, quote-unquote, and anti-vax, quote-unquote. It's sort of another, like we said at the beginning, false dichotomy. It, it, it's, not, it's not a this or that. But you do have people who do identify as, no, 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 I am anti-all vaccines. Then you have folks who, um, truly, this is the only exception to the vaccine issue that they, they, you know, that they take issue with. And once again, in ways that you would assume these two groups would be at odds, it, it turns out, no, 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 the issue at hand is very much, we're on the same page. This was a poorly tested product. It's causing harm. Um, and then it starts to break down the notion that there is really pro-vaccine and anti-vaccine. It turns out to mostly be safe pharmaceuticals or not safe pharmaceuticals. And then the last one being, uh, what was it? Oh, yes, virus or no virus. And once again, it's interesting, the the... I, I have not been able to to uh, find a way to convince either side that there's more to what they're talking about. What I have been able to do is understand that actually, as Matthew alluded to earlier, it would appear as though no virus was required to have occur what has occurred. 
That's not to say there was not a virus. It's to say the crisis we're looking at, the, the data, if I refer people to uh, Denny Rancourt's excellent work, where he simply analyzed a, a, a number of factors, primarily all-cause mortality, and also the timing of when certain things took place, when the nursing home death soared, and it very much looks as though this was a human-caused crisis. So what I'm getting at is that if you choose to look at it in that sense, it doesn't require you to take a firm stance on whether or not there is a virus. So these are all, those three examples are, are things that I think you're right. We have to accept the possibility that we're not going to agree on everything if we're coming together to work on a very specific, even if it's broad, it is still one area of our lives that we're all trying to improve. Um, and... So could you speak to that? Like, have you had any experience trying to reconcile, be it political or, you know, thoughts on vaccines or viruses? How have you handled those conversations as they've come up? Um, I generally just let the conversation come up. I, I don't probe people's um, person, personal feelings. I must say that um, the two things that I've learned um, over the last three years are wedge politics and nudge theory. Um, and so I was never aware of this before, but um, the, the idea that creating a boogeyman for the majority of people to basically point their finger at and say, that's the cause of all our problems, we should just get rid of the boogeyman. Um, the wedge politics of divide um, has been front and center from this from the get-go. You're either with us or you're not with us. Um, the other aspect of it is nudge. And I've, I've never been aware of this until recently. And there's so many examples of nudge. Of um, They're going to come right up to your face and see at what point you're going to take a step back. And if you don't take a step back, they'll back off. But they're going to come back again. And so that's the policy of giving people a little bit of freedom to let them taste it. But don't get used to it because we're going to come back and we're going to nudge you again. And that's the basis of the fall. Marriage. And they're going to study you specifically to know your personality type. They're going to understand, right. uh, they're going to understand the, the, the stick and the carrot that fit you in order to, uh, to move that tail of the curve. That's right. Right. So I, I don't know if that helps you, uh, under, you know, uh, with, with your question, Liam, but um, yeah. So, I, I don't know why the government would want to do this. You know, you haven't, uh, perhaps I've just been naive for all this time, um, but um, it, it has not ever been so much like in your face. And then as a consequence of it, the flow through is that everybody else from the government down, let's say down to our college is doing the exact same thing, is having the same divide. Not only this divide issue, but you will say what I tell you to say. You will prescribe what I tell you to prescribe. And if you don't, we're going to bring you up and we're going to investigate investigate you. And so it's this huge wedge issue that you're trying to create. And why are you doing this? Um, it, it's you know you've never interfered with let's say how doctors practices before. So long as we get good results, so long as we don't kill people and things, you've never <laughs> interfered. So why the heck would you want to interfere now? where we're really trying to save people the best we know how. And to our knowledge, we haven't been killing people. So why would you want to tell us now how we should practice? 
Um, very, very unusual. And so it, it's just a trickle-down effect. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, and it is on the division topic. It is an ongoing conversation. It is something that everyone, I think, needs to engage in. Um, and we'll continue to see if I think we're getting better at coming together on these things. Um, and, and I'm optimistic. So that very good thoughts. Um, to wrap up here, can you tell the audience how best they can help your efforts with the uh, the the legal case you have going um, and uh, any closing statements you want the audience to hear? Well, thank you very much. I, I like the audience to know that um, as one of our members, and we're, we're uh, I'm speaking now on behalf of the Canadian Society for Science and Ethics in Medicine, uh, this is the society that we have formed. We're a group of physicians. We're both, we have all types of physicians. We have vaccinated, partially vaccinated, unvaccinated physicians, but we all believe that what the government has done in trying to divide us is wrong by forcing these vaccines on, on us and on our patients is also wrong. Um, and so what started as the trucker's convoy, as the catalyst, we feel that we want to end it. We want to end all of this. We are at the tip of the spear uh, with our judicial review. Um, we're one of four reviews. The other three reviews are about constitutional challenges. Ours is not. Ours is a much more pragmatic uh, approach to it. Um, the government is going to throw all kinds of roadblocks to deny uh, or discredit um, our judicial review. We need help financially because a number of us aren't working anymore. Um, we need to raise an additional $300,000 um, for our lawyers to help fight this. And we have a very good team of lawyers. Um, we're uh, trying to organize ourselves better by bringing in a professional fundraiser, but we need your help. Now, um, if you would like to help us, um, please visit our website. That's cssem.org. Uh, there is a donation portal. Um, you can donate either by e-transfer or by check. So, so thanks for listening. <clears throat> Yeah, thank you very much for coming on, York. And um, thank you, Dr. Shang. And I, I, I hope you find the best ways and the most enjoyable ways to, to impart your 32 years of experience, uh, whether that's going back to work or finding finding ways to, to pass that down, because um, that's too valuable to to toss out the door in any medical system. Great, thank you. Well, and I'll say Dr. Shang has done a wonderful job uh, both within the Canadian COVID Care Alliance of educating uh, us, uh, the members of the CCCA, what's going on. He was the speaker not this past week, but a week before, um, and he headed the British Columbia chapter of the uh, Canadian COVID Care Alliance. So I have no doubt that, uh, York, that you will be successful both in this judicial review and uh, everything you choose to undertake in helping fix this ridiculous situation. So again, thank you for everything you've done. Thanks very much. Much appreciated. All right. So moving into our final moments, Matthew, um, that was uh, obviously quite wonderful. And um, it is nice having people on that I know uh, personally and getting to introduce them to you. That is what I've found to be very fulfilling, both with Dr. Pellick and Sonia 
and now with York. Yeah, it, it's it's great to hear people's stories. It's also important for people to hear stories. I think from multiple countries. I feel like um, hearing the stories uh, from Canada and hearing stories from other countries has broadened my but just sort of a big picture perspective, like the terrain of what all of this is, what all of this represents, because um, it, it is uh, such a huge thing that happened. And, and it's still, you know, we could, we could probably talk about it for decades and uh, it, it's unclear, but we have to know as much as possible. But um, it, it is unfortunate also that it, it seems to be just a continual financial attack on everyone at the same time too. And, you know, at the next, at the next stage of, of wherever it is we go from here, we should look back at that and understand it and understand that, you know, this is how a society can wound itself. And let's hope yeah, that that's yeah. not a moral wounding. We need to, we need a lot of people to be strong and do the right things. I agree. Um, and it's, it's unfortunate that, that financially, like that, that, that could be the tool with which people uh, are controlled or are silenced. Um, you know, money is the root of all evil or the love of money is the root of all evil, but also you need it to pay for food and rent. So you cut that off and you have great control. Now, just before we go, Matthew, there was, um, I wanted to turn to Johnny Nice right at the beginning, um, gave us some excellent comments. And I just wanted to address this. Sorry to go off topic, but are you guys still planning to have Professor Desmond on? Well, uh, we'd welcome him on. Uh, well, you know, this is just a matter of... Um scheduling and organizing at this point precisely and then the second thing um there, there is some interesting discussion going on around the the subject matter and the the materials that that professor desmond has put forward which i think is a sign that you're being an active academic um but i wasn't aware of this he's going through a rough patch in the belgian media right now after he admitted to lying to alex jones about witnessing open heart surgery without anesthesia i am not familiar with this i have no idea what I'm this not refers either. to <laughs> Um, but thank you, Johnny, for giving us something to go uh, look into. Yeah, as far as, <laughs> there's, there's also a debate out there going on between uh, Matthias Desmond and um, uh, Peter Bregan. Uh, is that did I get the name right? It's, yeah, and, Peter and, and Ginger uh, Bregan. Yes, and and like I'll just say this: like it, right now, it's a little bit chippy, but I, I think that there is room for a healthy discussion about these topics. You know, th there's no reason for it to be uh, for it to become. Um, the, you know, combat or, or something. Well, you know, just think things through, examine, uh, you know, examine the points everybody's making. And, you know, uh, most of most of the most important things are at a basic level in the same way uh, Dr. Shang was talking about, you know, basic ethics, ethics, the most important things are understanding the basic level. And so, you know, it is what it is, but we're happy to have him on when he can. Absolutely. So we'll keep you up to date on that. And um, yeah, let's let's wrap up the show for today. Uh, just once again, want to thank our very first super uh, chatter ever. Um, that was very kind of you. And I also want to thank um, uh, a Stewart on Rockfin who gave us our first ever Rockfin tip. Um, so this has been uh, a very uh, exciting episode uh, for Matthew and I as such. And as we uh, talked with Dr. Shang about at the end, there's also an opportunity to support his effort. So go to the website, which I have put in the chat, and I will also put it in the description. Um, so all in all, thank you for being a wonderful, supportive audience. You can also go subscribe to Rounding the Earth on Substack, www.roundingtheearth.substack.com. Become a paid member. It's the best way to support the show and to stay the most looped into everything Rounding the Earth is doing. But in other words, and in other ways of thinking, 
Thank you. And we look forward to seeing you again. I'll be back on Friday for your weekly news roundup on rounding the news. www.liamsturgis.com is where you can find me. And I will see you guys very shortly. Goodbye. Goodbye.